The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet John Fleming, a skydiver with over a thousand successful jumps after vision loss. Lynn Cooper returns with a spring fashion update for women, and she's bringing along an old friend. But first, here's Day Al Mohammed, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, with a legislative update. By the time you get this, most of the budget decisions should already have been made, uh, but I actually want people to be very, very aware of it, because if there's no money, there's no programs. The House put together their version, the Senate put together theirs, they disagreed and they put together a conference version. Uh, the biggest problem right now has been the House. Their version is like slash and burn. They're taking money out of everything. And the Senate was a lot more conservative. We've got a lot of people on our side, the Senate, who tried to, like, stall this a little bit. And the final version, which came out, I think it was like four days before Christmas, is actually terrible. Just a few things. It's like, one, dealing with children's health. The way it's written, there is no guarantee for Medicaid health benefits for kids. No matter what they say, yes, we're going to protect children, it's actually not guaranteed in there when you get down to the nitty-gritty. They talk about saving $16 billion in Medicaid. They're going to do that by raising your co-payments. And what it is is they're saying, well, if you're above the poverty line, then we're going to set like a 10% limit. You know, they can't charge you more than 10% on a copay. Well, let's say if something happens, your, your diabetes acts up, you end up in the hospital, even if it's one day or just a quick visit. I had an emergency room visit once. It was about $1,000. Um, I was a student at the time. Let me tell you, 10%, that's 100 bucks. How many people have an extra $100? And, you know, if you had to stay multiple days, that's several hundred. If you are under the poverty line, the way it's written, there's no limit. And you know how that they're going to save money on it? Not just by higher copays, but their own researchers said, because people will forego services. People will decide, I'm not sick enough to go to the doctor, and so they don't go. So they're hedging on people not getting the medical care that they need yes. as a means of saving the money for the budget. Exactly. You know, they said, well, what we're doing is we're trying to slow the rate of Medicaid growth. Do you know what that equals to? That equals to tossing people off or forcing people, because they can't afford copayments, to not go at all. There's um, a group, it's the Emergency Campaign for America's Priorities, which we're working with, and basically we're building this, this giant campaign to rattle Congress. Because one of the things that's really irritating, and, and as a couple of people said, you know, some of them have been regular snakes in the grass. It, it's kind of a, well, yeah, we support people with disabilities. We know you're on a limited income and that you need these health care. And then they turn around and they voted for this. And they said, we understand. And they sent letters saying, you know, it's important to us. And then they turn around and voted the other way. Some of them, they'll say, well, we didn't support it. They'll vote one way. And then when it came down to the final conference report, they supported it. They talk about things like um, having citizenship requirements and citizenship verification, which, depending on where you are, a lot of people have different thoughts on it. But with regard to race, a lot of people, especially people who are older, who are minorities, might not have it because they were born at home, and it was years ago. Asset transfers for people who have too much money, they have made it punitive. If you gave a gift to your grandkids years ago, it may come back and haunt you because they'll say, no, 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 you tried to get rid of an asset, we're not going to let you get this health care. So, so there's a big can of worms that we really don't know where it's going to spill. Exactly. And what's really ugly and has really made me angry, and a lot of people are angry about it, is one of the things that got dropped was the rebate provision on pharmacy materials for Medicaid. 
what it is, the government kind of got a rebate from the pharmaceutical company saying, you know, hey, we'll charge you less for the medicines. They got rid of that. So they're going to pay more for prescription medication. Where's the saving of money in that? You know who benefits from that? The pharmaceutical companies. And there's another one about Medicaid enticements because, well, some hospitals and physicians, well, they might not want to take Medicaid, so we've got this slush fund of money to encourage them to take it. And their own government actuaries and researchers said, you don't need this anymore because hospitals and physicians, they're coming to it. They're taking it. But the medical groups and the hospital groups, convince them, yes, you do. So basically, who comes out on top? You have the pharmaceutical companies, you have the hospitals, and at the end of the day, it does not reduce the deficit. It'll just about cover the tax breaks uh, that are being voted on at about the same time in early February. And that's just one area of the budget. I'm sure that there are things in other areas that would impact people with low vision or blindness or those who need rehab services. We talked last month about rehab. We talked about Randolph Shepard. Yeah, once you start dealing with health care and the amount of money people come in, because this is also going to affect some things like um, SSI and some of the back payments, because when a lot of people apply for it, everyone knows Social Security takes forever. And during this time, if you have no job and you have nothing, you're racking up bills. And now they're saying, we don't have to pay you back immediately. We'll take our time paying you back. So I'm like, how are you supposed to pay those bills off? And if you die, well, they don't have to pay then. It's one of the things that they are counting on. They're counting on people dying before they get paid. That way they don't have to pay the full amount. That's where they're making their savings. It's just wrong. You're taking food out of people's mouths because they're going to have to decide, should I eat or should I go to the doctor because I'm sick or because my kids are sick? And after everything that happened with the hurricane and people who have lost everything, they're going to cut funding to these kind of programs that are the very things that are helping keep people going. Beyond that, we are working up for a legislative seminar this coming year, which I'm really excited about. Uh, we've cut down a little bit on the issues. Rather than six, I'm hoping to get away with just four. Uh, part of that is because we're heading towards an election year, so most legislators aren't going to put up anything too contentious in an election year. Other than budgets. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, this was something they, they'd kind of hoped to get done a little bit earlier. And I think one of the things that's been the advantage is the media's really been hounding them hard. This will be heard in most places after the conclusion of the legislative seminar, but just very briefly, what are the issues that you plan for the seminar? We're still juggling on some of them because I want to try and make sure we have it right up to the minute of what Congress is doing and what things we're going to be most effective on. Uh, we're definitely hitting some Randolph Shepard issues because there was a big hearing last year about how useful are these programs for employing people who are blind and visually impaired. And some of the things that came out and some of the assumptions that they made are not things that uh, are necessarily positive. We want to make sure that they have a, an honest idea of what are these programs do and why it's important to continue funding programs to get people who are visually impaired back in the workforce. That also includes how VR operates as well. We're going to try and see what we can do with descriptive video, which is uh, another area that, unfortunately, with some of the other things, I, we didn't give as much attention as I would like to have given to it, so we intend to pick that up again. Social security is always ongoing, but I'm hoping to try and consolidate it into something that gives people exactly what information is going to be needed. So those are just a couple. I'm still juggling with the last one that to figure out what's going to be most important in the upcoming year. That way it's something that's usable all year long. At what point following the conclusion of a legislative seminar do you begin to be able to judge the effectiveness of that event and whether or not having the people visit their congressmen and their senators did anything at all toward forwarding your issues? 
I think one of the biggest things that I want to emphasize with regard to something like a legislative seminar is it's not just going up there on that day and talking to your legislator. That lets them know you're there, but the impact on that legislator isn't from that one trip. And that's one of the things I I want to really stress to people. Those of you who can't make it, it doesn't matter. It's not whether you're here on one day. The fact is if you're here all year long, you don't have to live in D.C. You just have to maintain contact. Lobbying isn't going up there on a day and saying this is important. They just know they've got to put up with you for one day. But if you're someone who calls back a couple of weeks later, hi, I visited you, we talked about this, they're going to remember you. If you call back a month later saying you voted this way on it, but you told us you were going to vote the other way, then they're going to remember you. It's not about going up on one day. It's about building a relationship. And what Legislative Seminar is, it gives you a nice jumping-off point to start that relationship. It gives you a chance to talk to other people who are trying to do the same thing from their own state and impacting their legislators federally. A lot of times we as constituents pass up the opportunity to inform our legislators about things that are important. We think they're not going to care, they're not going to listen. I worked in a Senate office for a while. I manned the phones. Trust me, we sit there and we write down the little notes that come from people. Or if it's an issue that's taking a vote, we tally up how many are for and how many are against. So they do remember that. I really want to get people going all year long. And let me tell you, if you do it to a senator or a House member and you keep track, they will remember you too. And it also means that when you call, they're more likely to listen because they know you're watching. Legislative seminar is a beginning. It's not one day of lobbying. It's about how can I take the information and how can I use it. Here at the National Office, we really try to educate members of Congress about the general impact about issues. But the actual details about how it's going to impact you locally has got to come from people in the state. It's got to come from you, whether you're in Iowa, whether you're in Hawaii, whether you're in Nebraska. It has to come from you because they're going to listen for you. Do you know why? Because you're from their neighborhood. You're from their hometown. Your kids went to the same school their kids went to. And that's what's going to make the difference. Legislation may be federal, but at the same time, all politics is local. It's going to matter that you're from the neighborhood. And it's going to matter if you say, I don't like this and this is why. Make sure that people have a clear back plan of action. I think a lot of times we end up calling and saying, this is what it's about. And, and I think that's the other reason I want legislative seminar. It's, is it's a learning experience, not just about legislation. I can tell you guys about legislation. It's going to change. We can teach the wording. It's going to change. But I want people to understand the process because if you understand the process and how things go, then the rest of it's easy. Then you just need the information. If you have the information and you know how the process works, then you understand what's at stake. If you know what's going on, then you can change what's going on. That was Dayal Mohammed from the American Council of the Blind in Washington, D.C. You're listening to ACB Reports from the American Council of the Blind. John Fleming of Portland, Oregon, has enjoyed skydiving for over 40 years. With over 1,900 jumps, he continues to participate in the sport he loves, even though he's lost most of his vision. Here he is, in his own words, at the 44th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in July 2005. As you said, my name is John Fleming, and I am a skydiver. About 42 years ago, when I was in the United States Air Force, I was stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. Um, (laughs) We were watching Wide World of Sports, 
and the Army parachute team was on. And I made the comment, I think, I've always wanted to try that. Well, one of my friends dared me to do it. And uh, about two weeks later, we found a little drop zone in Higginsville, Missouri. And uh, for $15 and with about 45 minutes of training, I put on an old modified Army parachute, round parachute, went up and made my first skydive. Uh, my feet weren't back on the ground before I knew that I was going to do this again. Well, 42 years later, I've made 1,937 skydives. Um, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about um, my skydiving career. Um, it kind of follows the um, example that the, the woman yesterday talking about retinitis pigmentosa and the gradual loss of sight. My skydiving kind of went through those same five um, stages, the uh, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and then maintenance. I'm in the maintenance stage now. In 1963, when I made my first jump, uh, I, my eyesight was, was starting to get bad, but it was, was well enough that I could skydive on my own. In 1965, when I went to re-enlist in the Air Force, my eyesight had gotten to the point where they wouldn't let me re-enlist. Now, during the same time period, I had taken flying lessons and had a pilot's license. Um, in 1969, I was in an airplane by myself up flying just for fun, and uh, I came within about 40, maybe 50 feet of having a mid-air collision with an airplane that I just plain didn't see. When I realized what had happened, I landed the airplane, I took the keys into the airport office, handed them the keys, said it's been fun, and I never flew an airplane again by myself. I moved from California to Oregon, and um, I, I applied for my Oregon driver's license. Well, um, my eyesight was to the point where they wouldn't give me an Oregon driver's license. I still have my California license, so I continued to drive for another four years. In 1978, I stopped to pick up a hitchhiker. turned out to be a mailbox. I um, <laughs> took my truck home, parked it. I never drove my truck again. Um, at that point, my skydiving, I was still jumping by myself. I wasn't using any kind of a special equipment or anything. But what I was, I couldn't see the ground well enough to really know where to land. So I was following another skydiver down, following their parachute and landing where they landed. And while they were under canopy, these guys were yelling at me, turn right, turn left. It was working, but it wasn't really that safe. Well, one day, one of my friends told me, this way, BJ, my nickname was BJ with these guys, and I thought he said cutaway. And what cutaway means to a skydiver is that you pull one handle, it releases your main parachute, and then you open your reserve parachute. Well, I thought if he sees something that much wrong with my parachute that he's telling me to cut away, I did. And I used my reserve and everything worked out good, but it was not the thing to do. So um, my skydiving friends started telling me, you know, maybe you've had enough, you've made over 800 jumps, uh, maybe it's time for you to quit. Well, after they talked to me for a few minutes, they realized that quitting wasn't an option. Uh, I was going to continue to skydive one way or another. So we got together, we started doing some brainstorming, and I started using two-way radios so that somebody on the ground could talk me down. I uh, bought a, an audible altimeter that I wear on my helmet that beeps at the uh, altitude that I want to open my parachute. And um, I continued that way for a while. Well, we kept improving it, and uh, this was kind of like the... Uh, the preparation part of those stages. We, um, I had a custom-built helmet made, and I got speakers in it for my two radios. I wear two two-way radios. I bought a second audible altimeter, so that I got two audible altimeters. I also have a um, 
little device that is on my reserve parachute. It's called a Cypress. It's a $1,200 computerized altimeter and speed sensor. And if I go through 750 feet above the ground going over 85 miles an hour, it automatically activates my reserve parachute. So with all of these devices in place, I'm still able to skydive. I'm very active skydiving. I, I make maybe 30 to 40 jumps a year. Uh, my big goal is to get to 2,000. And uh, about three years ago, I had made a bunch of skydives at the Paris Valley Drop Zone in Southern California. And um, we were sitting around in the bar after jumping, and some of my fellow jumpers realized that not only have I a passion for skydiving, but I also have this passion for the American Council of the Blind. And uh, we came up with a plan to do a fundraiser, and 12 other skydivers and two video people all agreed to come up with at least $250 in pledges, and, uh, and we would attempt a rather difficult skydive. We'd make two attempts at it, and it would be a fundraiser for ACB. So we did it on April the 19th, 2003. And uh, we had Mitch Pomerantz uh, showed up to uh, represent ACB. And we raised uh, in the neighborhood of about $8,000. Um, so it was so successful that the guys all said, hey, let's do it again. So in uh, January of this year, January the 29th, we had 21 of us this time, uh, 19 skydivers and two video people, who all agreed to come up with the $250 minimum pledges. And uh, we built a formation in free fall that looked like a big eye in the sky. It was 19 skydivers all linked together, and I was in the pupil right in the middle of the, of the eye. It took us two attempts, but we did do it, and we raised in the neighborhood of about $9,000 this time. And I might mention that um, that day, Mitch Pomerantz and his wife Donna and another member of the uh, California Council of the Blind, Ron Smith, all did tandem skydives that day. So um, that was uh, pretty cool. And um, I've already gotten a commitment from the guys to um, do another one um, in uh, 2006. So two points that I'd like to make is that if you have a passion for something and because of your eyesight you think you can't do it, well, what you got to do is just get together with other people that do it, do some brainstorming, figure out some ways to adapt. And uh, there's just about nothing that, as people who are visually impaired and blind, that we can't do. If you just think about it and, and do some brainstorming and... At the same time, you can have a lot of fun and raise a lot of money. So get together with the people that you do different things with, and, um, and there's a way to um, come up with a lot of uh, good funding for um, the American Council of the Blind. Thank you very much, and blue skies. That was John Fleming, recorded in July 2005 at the American Council of the Blind National Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. Do you have comments about today's program? Send an email message to reports at acbradio.org or write to us at American Council of the Blind, 1155 15th Street, Northwest, Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005. It's time for our spring fashion update with Lynn Cooper of Lynn Cooper & Associates. We're pleased to announce that Laura Oftedal will be assisting us with this segment of the show. So, Laura, thank you, and welcome back. As many of our listeners know, I retired from doing ACB Reports a few months ago, but there's one part of ACB Reports and one specific segment of this program 
that I just couldn't walk away from. It's very near and dear to my heart. And so I'm glad to be here bringing you information and uh, access to your fashion world and to health and fitness and all those other good topics that we need to pay attention to. So it is Lynn Cooper with Lynn Cooper and Associates bringing us the spring outlook this time. What's new, Lynn? Well, thank you, Laura. I really appreciate it. I am really thrilled to to be back, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, working with uh, Mike Duke as well. Twice a year, we hit upon the trend reports for the seasons, and I'm going to start with the women's. These are pages from Vogue magazine, GQ, newspapers, the media, runways, stores. We're distilling it to give this visual uh, realm to our listeners. So with that in mind, I'm going to begin. There are six primary trends, Laura. Once again, these are on the runway. This is the art we often talk about. Not that I'm implying that everybody should run out and get what I'm speaking about, but this is what the designers are putting out there. Usually what happens is these looks get distilled and then they find themselves on your store rack. The first uh, look, Laura, that's really new is called Antiquarian. And imagine you're watching a movie or having a movie from the Gilded Age described to you. And, and, and part of that is overblown, exaggerated looks, femininity, lace, and a very busy, frilly style is very big, very romantic, to, to use one word for it. The uptight strictness of the Victorian era is updated with rumpled, wrinkled fabric, flora, uh, edges, which are kind of unusual, which are left to fray. Uh, it's accented with pleats, as I said, a lot of ruffles and bows. Even some of the um, more out-there designers are using bustles. The fabrics that we're seeing for this, of course, lace, romantic cottons, eyelet, that is the fabric that has little holes in it, and uh, linens what have you. It's very, very much a return to an era gone by. The next look, which is very big, is called Odyssey, and essentially that's Grecian-inspired. These are looks that remind one of a toga, if you will, looks that wrap and drape the body. Usually they're very unconstructed silhouettes in knits, very thin, like jersey knits, uh, fabrics that will flow and lay that way. Dominant color choices include of course, white, alabaster, metallics, and soft shades. Um, these focus on an empire waist, a neoclassical look, and prints which are inspired by mosaics. What we're also seeing a lot of for spring are Wedgwood porcelain looks. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar, Wedgwood porcelain is the British porcelain that is primarily a soft blue, and then the figures on it are raised in ivory, and those would be, of course, neoclassical figures, people living their lives. We have ropes. As I said, it's very much like wearing a toga, and these are in real soft fabrics. And, and those, those things tactile on the clothing as well? Oh, no, 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 Laura, I beg your pardon. Okay. Forgive me. I'm glad you asked that. The print is reminiscent print. of looking at a Wedgwood china, uh-huh. a pattern. It is not raised. Although we are finding uh, this spring a lot of beading and a lot of texture in the fabrics, but good question. A, a look that's near and dear to my heart, being a baby boomer and, and having lived through it, is the gypsy, as I call it, the hippie look. And, uh, you know, the designers say it's folk-inspired, which is a polite way of saying it's got lots of fringes, lots of beads, lots of stuff going on, 
and a lots of uh, memories of the 60s. And out there in Berkeley, it never went away. <laughs> well, once again, as we as we always tell our listeners, Laura, this is all relative, and you know we also have to remember that this is geographically pertinent. You know, in, in some areas of the country, as Laura just mentioned, you know this bohemian gypsy folk inspired look is fine, and, and there's not a need for a tie and a skirt and, and hose and and heels for work, but uh, in other parts of the country, you go to the East Coast and it's going to be altogether different. This is a focus on, as you can imagine, prints and patterns. Silhouette is easy, oversized, uh, smock top dresses, flounced peasant skirts, and a good place to find these is secondhand shops. Uh-huh. Really good place because you don't want to put a lot of money into these sort of out there fashion trends that are going to be here right now and then next year, bye bye. A lot of floral prints, insect and, and nature prints, romantic prints, actually combined with plaids and stripes. And there's going to be also petticoats worn under them. That's a bit much, but circle skirts, belted jackets. Then, Laura, another big look, and these are always fun in that, just like the uh, gypsy uh, hippie look, you can take a little piece. Uh, an accessory or maybe a top and and put it with a uh, more classical skirt or pair of pants. You don't have to go all together the hippie look um, because what will happen is it will look like you're wearing a costume. The really big trend we're also seeing is, is we're calling it global, and that's essentially a continued interest, which has remained strong in global cultures with a spotlight on uh, Africa and eastern countries, India, Asia, what have you. Tribal prints. Very, very big. Really a great place to, to work in accessories, embroideries, fabrics that are printed to look like pottery that's been uh, painted, wall paintings, blankets, batik, um, really very, very earthy as if you were going on an Amazon trip and you stopped on a shore and went up to the village and, and that's what they were wearing. Uh, darks and bright natural and earth tones. We're Are looking. animal prints still in? They animal prints. Or we're seeing them in some accessories, but they are not as big right now. They are big. I mean, we're looking at African-inspired fabrics, and yes, you know, leopard, tiger, zebra prints are big, but they're not as ubiquitous as they have been in the past. Um, we're also seeing Indian inspiration, Laura, uh, in necklines. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with a Nehru jacket, N-E-H-R-U. And that is not a classical laid collar or a lapel. It is a little strip of fabric that runs around your uh, neckline and um, it stands it's stand, up straight. It's like a stand-up collar. In Precisely, way. Laura. Usually that collar is about an inch, an inch and a half. Indian-inspired fabrics, we're getting a lot of real uh, chunky silks. They call them slubbed, S-L-U-B-B-E-D, slubbed silks with a lot of texture, shantung silks. Gold embroideries, like imagine a sari um, that uh, Indian women wear, uh, the traditional garb, these beautiful bright colors with often gold or silver thread woven through. That's very, very big. And then we have a look that is simply called simplistic, and it's a very, very easy and oversized silhouettes. Not a lot of fuss and muss, not a lot of bells and whistles and accessories and zippers and and a lot of the gugas. It's very, very simple. And then even beyond that, with regard to that simplistic look, the uh, detailing is, is very minimalistic. Drawstrings, 
the zippers are invisible, if not um, unobtrusive, on the garment. They are not adding to the look of it. Metal buttons, the fabrics are very simple, very plain. And then even more um, basic would be the stark, streamlined look. And that is really clean and stripped down. That's really functional. No fuss, no frill at all. Minimum closures. Uh, there are a few designers that really you look at it and um, it's almost as if they uh, they just cut it out of the fabric, did one or two stitches, and you just throw it over your head almost as a poncho. And those are easy to wear. They're really good. Um, it's a good look for people who might have a little excess pounds here or there on their body. They sort of camouflage and hide a, a lot of uh, sins, if you will. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio. 